Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest! Kalia will edify it's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest! Burn Kalia gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where I, Kalia, a huge book nerd, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. But I know you don't want to just hear my voice, so I have a rotating roster of guests joining me. Today's guest is Catherine, who I will introduce to you in just a sec. But first, I want to remind you of all the ways you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a webpage where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show, including a list of our upcoming episodes. You can also contact us via our Facebook or Twitter or by emailing us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. We really want to hear from you, so feel free to share your thoughts, opinions, rants, and disagreements with us. Note about this episode. We are again recording during the pandemic and using Zoom. And while I think I have gotten better about voice volumes and editing, I am still totally an amateur, and so please forgive any weird audio issues. Today we will be talking about Little Fires Everywhere, the 2017 novel by Celeste Ning that was adapted for a miniseries by Hulu in 2020. So, let's get into it, but before we do our recaps, I just want to say hello to Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Kalia. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I am doing well. So Catherine and I actually went to high school together in the 90s, in the late 90s. That's right. Not not in Ohio, but still, we graduated in 1998, and this book takes place in 1997, so I thought a pretty fun walk down memory lane in a, in a few ways. Yeah, I think we're also more or less the same age as the author, Celeste Ng. I think but... you're right. That sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. <laughs> and we also grew up in the suburbs. 
Yep, definitely. Neither one of us, I think, lived in like the kind of house that the Richardsons live in in this book or went to the type of school that, you know, Shaker. But we did grow up in a in an eclectic community. Certainly, I think most kids in our high school, you know, there was like a pretty wide social class spectrum, but we were definitely in proximity to quite affluent areas, right? And very aware of like the neighboring high schools right that had where like the rich kids went definitely yeah so I think in that regard there was something about the sort of pristineness of the suburban landscape that is described in Shaker Heights Ohio in this novel Um, there's some things that I could still sort of identify as familiar the Bay Area very eclectic but also stratified in some ways too anyways okay well I'm gonna do our recap and then we are gonna jump into this so settle back friends little fires everywhere in 1998 the Richardson's home has caught fire. Arson is suspected as there were multiple small fires. Most of the rest of the book is in the flashback. One year ago, 1997, Elena Richardson has rented her rental home across town to Mia Warren, an artist, and Mia's teenage daughter, Pearl. Elena's younger son, Moody, who is Pearl's age, develops a crush on Pearl and becomes friends with her. Pearl meets his siblings, Lexi, Tripp, and Izzy. Pearl, who is used to a transient lifestyle in which her mother scrapes together only enough money to live, is charmed by the Richardsons and their established and very fancy home. She spends time there every day, develops a crush on Trip, and idolizes Lexi. Mia works part-time at a Chinese restaurant and sells photographs through a dealer in New York. She becomes concerned about Pearl's idolization of the Richardsons. When Elena condescendingly offers her a job doing housekeeping for the family, Mia agrees only to keep an eye on Pearl. She meets Izzy, the black sheep of the family, and the two become close. The Richardsons are invited to the birthday party of Mirabelle McCulloch, the adopted daughter of Elena's best friend. Mia realizes that this child is actually Mei Ling Chow, the daughter of Bibi Chow, Mia's co-worker at the Chinese restaurant who gave up her child in the middle of a postpartum episode and economic hardship. Bibi has been looking for her child for over a year. Mia tells Bibi, but the McCulloughs refuse to let Bibi see Mirabelle. Bibi is despondent as she has no money for lawyers. Mia advises her to go to the local news and get them involved. The scandal results in Bibi getting visitation rights and help from a lawyer pro bono. Elena discovers that Bibi learned of her child's whereabouts through Mia. Angry on behalf of her friend, she investigates Mia's past. She tracks down Mia's parents and learns that Pearl was conceived by Mia for a wealthy New York couple who are unable to have children of their own. Mia could not face the idea of giving up her child, so she told the couple that she miscarried and ran away with Pearl. Mia's parents haven't heard from her since. Lexi gets pregnant and asks Pearl to come with her to get an abortion. Afraid of being discovered, Lexi uses Pearl's names on the intake clinic form. Pearl and Tripp also begin to have sex, which they keep a secret from everyone. When Moody discovers what's going on, he and Pearl stop speaking, and he's also a giant douche. Elena investigates a suspicion that Bibi had an abortion and, to her shock, discover Pearl is listed as having had one. She confronts Moody about being the father, but he tells her she's accusing the wrong son. Bibi loses her case. Elena tells Mia she knows about Pearl and she must move out. Pearl is reluctant to go, but Mia explains about her biological father and she accepts. Izzy realizes that Moody, Lexi, and Tripp have all used Pearl in their own way and becomes very angry. Choosing a moment when they are all out of the house, she starts small fires in everyone's beds, not realizing that her mother is still at home. Elena manages to escape the fire unharmed. 
After the fire, the Richardsons go to the rental home, now vacated by the Warrens, where they find that Mia has left them with photographs that have personal significance to each of them. Bibi, using Mia's words as inspiration, sneaks into the McCullough's house and kidnaps her daughter, flying with her to Canton. The McCulloughs unsuccessfully spend thousands of dollars searching for them. Eventually, they are approved to adopt a baby from China. Mia and Pearl hit the road, planning to reconnect with Mia's family and Pearl's father. Izzy runs away to Pittsburgh with the name of Mia's parents, promising herself that if she is caught in return, she will continue to run away until she is never forced to come back again. Elena realizes that her greatest fear of losing Izzy has come true and vows to spend the rest of her life looking for her daughter. I obviously skipped a lot of stuff, and that's okay because that's in the other part of the recap, which is our mini-series recap, where we'll dive a little bit more into the nitty-gritty. Here we go. So it is spread out over eight episodes. It has most of the same narrative beats. I'm going to do the recap a little bit differently than normal. But again, it's 1998 and the Richardson home has caught fire. Arson is again suspected. There are multiple small fires. A few months earlier, Elena Richardson had rented her rental home across town to Mia Warren, an artist, and her teenage daughter, Pearl. She gave them a hell of a deal after calling the cops on Mia for sleeping in her car while black because, oh yes, Mia is an African-American woman in the show and race plays a pretty big part in the story. Elena's younger son, Moody, who's Pearl's age, develops a crush on Pearl and becomes friends with her. Pearl meets his siblings, Lexi, Tripp, and Izzy. Pearl, who's used to a transient lifestyle in which her mother only scrapes together enough money for them to live, is again charmed by the Richardsons and their established home. She spends time there every day, develops a crush on Trip, idolizes Lexi. That's all the same. Also the same, Mia works part-time in a Chinese restaurant and sells photographs through a dealer in New York. Also, she becomes concerned about Pearl's idolization of the Richardsons when Elena, full of liberal guilt and white savior complex, offers her a job doing housekeeping for her family. She agrees only to keep an eye on Pearl. And she meets Izzy, the black sheep of the family. The two become close. Bibi Chow is pretty much the same as well, working at the restaurant, looking for the baby that she abandoned. Elena's BFF has adopted a little Chinese girl who's been found at a fire station. While helping Elena prep for the party, Mia hears the full story and puts two and two together. She offers to take photos at the party and gets an invite. At Mirabelle McCullough's party, Mia finds the birthmark that confirms her theory and tells Bibi, who crashes the party, screaming for her baby to come back. Bibi is despondent. She has no money for lawyers. Mia is fully invested in the case and sells a photograph of herself while pregnant in order to fund Bibi's lawyer's fees. Elena discovers that Bibi learned of her child's whereabouts through Mia. She is pissed. Also, Izzy recognizes the photo that was sold. Mia has more money than she appeared to have. This fuels Elena, who investigates Mia's past. Elena, the reporter whose career fizzled after her fourth child, Izzy, still has connections and has a New York dinner with a former beau. She gets info on Mia, and there is definitely some sexual tension. Side note, years ago, during her own post-traumatic moment with the four kids and no water to make formula, Elena had run off to cry on this dude's shoulder. They almost slept together, but she changed her mind. Present day, Mr. Richardson suspects this affair, but does nothing about it except stew in his own juices until the very end of the series. Back to investigator Elena. She's tracked down Mia's parents and learned that Pearl was conceived by Mia for a wealthy New York couple who are unable to have children of their own. In her own flashback, we as the audience learn that Mia had a romantic entanglement with her professor, the same photographer who took her naked pregnancy photo that she sold for Bibi. Anyway, while pregnant, Mia's much-loved brother had died. Her parents were horrified that she was pregnant with someone else's baby. They won't let her attend her brother's funeral. Mia writes to the New York couple, tells them that she miscarried, bails on her professor girlfriend, and takes off for San Francisco, where she has Pearl, finds out that her girlfriend had cancer and has died, and then starts her life pretty much on the run. 
The same episode has Elena's flashback, which I've already sort of mentioned, but I want to call out that the fourth pregnancy was unplanned and she got no support for even thinking about getting an abortion. Speaking of unplanned pregnancies, back in the present, Lexi is pregnant and she goes to get an abortion. Pearl is her ride, and again, Lexi uses Pearl's name on the intake form. Pearl is pissed, but she still brings Lexi home afterwards where Mia takes care of her. But also, Mia calls Lexi on her bullshit and is very tough. It's not just tough love, it's just tough. Also, also, we learn that Izzy had been involved with one of her friends in a secret same-sex relationship. Izzy is coded as queer, something she bonds with Mia over. Her dad knows, but Elena doesn't. The trial for Mirabelle heats up, and Elena does all the well-meaning, horrible things that you would expect her to do. She offers Bibi money, she threatens to tell Pearl about Mia's past if Mia testifies on behalf of Bibi, but to no avail. Mia does indeed testify for Bibi, and Elena does indeed tell Pearl what her mother had been hiding for her. Pearl is pissed at Mia. Also, Elena investigates the suspicion that Bibi had an abortion, and to her shock discovers that Pearl is listed as having had one. She confronts Moody about being the father, tells her she's accusing the wrong son, she kicks Mia out of the rental property, Izzy also puts it all together and that Lexi was the one with the abortion, and that Moody is a douche. For the family photo, Izzy flips off the camera, and in anger, Elena cuts her out of the photos. Izzy finds these, takes it very personally, as you would expect. Mia apologizes to Pearl about the secrets and offers to help Pearl find her father. They pack up to leave after Mia finishes just one last art thingy. Elena is upset with Mr. Richardson. He didn't throw Mia under the bus like Elena wanted him to during the trial. Even though he won the case and Bibi lost, he doesn't seem happy. He finally actually accuses her of the affair, won't listen to her try to explain, and storms out. Elena is distraught. Mia and Pearl return to the rental key, and Izzy sees. She realizes that Moody, Lexi, and Trip have all abused Pearl in their own way. She becomes angry. She grabs a random gas can and attempts to light her room on fire, but her siblings stop her. During the yelling confrontation, Elena yells horrible, hurtful things at Izzy, and this pisses off the sibling unit enough that after she leaves the room and Izzy has run away, the elder three kids light the house on fire. I hated this bit, and yes, we will definitely talk about it. So, the house has been burnt. Pearl and Mia are driving off to Pennsylvania so Pearl can meet her grandparents. Izzy is in the wind, a 15-year-old runaway on a bus. Worst and scariest moment of the entire thing. Elena tells the cops that she started the fire, and I'm unsure if she meant literally as to take the blame for her kids or metaphorically because of her actions and consequences. She goes to the rental unit looking for Izzy but finds the last art thing that Mia did, a recreation of the town with a gold cage where the Richardson house would be. The door is open. The only thing left is a red feather that Mia had stolen from Izzy's room because also Mia stole things from this family, but more on that later. And least we forget, Maribel has been awarded to the McCullough's, but Bibi broken into their home and stolen her. The end. Hla. It's a lot. <laughs> a lot of recap. Thing about Mia stealing things from them, she does it too also in the book. Does she? I totally did yeah. not remember that. No, because in the end, she leaves behind, like, this big, like, package of, like, portraits and the, and the, um, film for them, and, right. and but so the they each have, like, a portrait, and in it, it describes, the book describes the portraits, and it includes things like, oh, Miss, uh, Mr. Richardson's collar, and... Yes, okay, so, so yeah. technically, yeah. but I feel like there's a difference, because she stole, it was the little collar thing that goes under his shirts that you throw away, um, yeah. It was a thing of one of Tripp's guards for one of his sports games. I don't know sports, but it was like right. also no, all things that you've discarded. Yeah, yeah. Right, and in in the yeah. show, it was not things that she like rummages through their yeah, rooms. Through things, yeah. You're right. Yeah, the the stealing is there, but I guess it's the way it was done was different. The way it's done, yeah. Which is a really good jumping up point, actually, because I feel like the show had a lot of similar narrative beats, but the way it was portrayed, they made choices 
that kind of affect how you feel about it. Like, for example, you're right, she did steal things, but they were discarded things. So, so for me, it didn't even really register as theft so much, but it was mm -hmm. very jarring to see her going through the house and like going through room by room with a laundry basket. You know what I mean? Yeah, like looking at their medication and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like Mia in the book was was a kinder, gentler Mia. And in the show, she was she was harder. She was tougher, but also, and I don't know if that's partly the choices they made, such as the thievery, um, and partly Carrie Washington's affectations, but she just seemed cold and, and almost, not unsympathetic, she was definitely sympathetic, but there was definitely a hardness about her that I did not get in the book. In the book, she felt warm and fuzzy. What did you think? Well, yeah, maybe one place to start is to talk about, well, maybe the two main women, actually, both Elena and Mia, right, mm -hmm. are very, like, when you, when we move into the television medium, both of those characters are drawn out with a much heavier hand. And certainly we have to talk about the racial casting, of course, the choice to, to cast Mia and Pearl as Black, which is not actually explicitly stated in the novel. And we'll, so we'll talk about that in a moment, too. But I think you know, with Elena and Mia sort of being the kind of rival women in this narrative, they're both drawn with a lot sort of more kind of explicit strokes. Right? Like, I didn't read Elena as necessarily a villain, right, in the book. You know, certainly a very kind of entitled, rich, white woman with a whole lot of blind spots, right? But I think in, in the series, she's actually quite malicious, right, to a point of doing illegal things and very ethically questionable things, like even being the one to tell Pearl, right, Mia's secret, which does not happen in the book either, right? That is something that the, the mother and daughter, actually, that's a conversation that they have together. And then for Elena to come in to pull that move kind of makes her a lot more kind of an evil person, right? They were both ramped up to 11. You know, they were yeah. both more extreme yeah. versions. And I have a few theories about why they made Elena more severe and more villainous. I think it's to to help us as the audience, especially, come on, it's, it's Hulu and it's Reese Witherspoon. So white women like me watching this go, well, she's bad. I would never do that. Like she's crossed a line that I wouldn't cross, right? They, they made her more extreme. But when they made Mia more extreme, I found her harder to root for in some ways. And I didn't like that. Does, does that make sense? Like it bothered me that they hardened her so much. It didn't bother me that they made Elena more villainous. Like I was, I mean, it bothered me because I felt like we didn't need that spoon fed and it would have been a much more interesting, impactful thing to, to have it be more subtle because I think that would be more real to life. It affected the way I saw both of them, definitely. Yeah. Well, and then when we talk about sort of Mia being a more severe character, is part of that also her legibility specifically as a black woman, right? In the way that we associate a certain kind of, you know, the whole angry black woman kind of stereotype, right? And so does it sort of become that, which, you know, I mean, I guess this is where we can talk about what then happens when you do cast a character, you know, with a particular racial background, right? right. And so, yeah, so to go back to your point of Mia sort of being a much softer character is true. In the book, she never actually lectures at Lexi, right, for being, you know, this rich white girl. She never sort of tells 
Elena, oh yeah, white women always want to be friends with their maid. You know, like the, the explicit racial commentary is only really made possible precisely by her being a black woman on the show. Like she need, like the character needs to be a black woman on the show in order to make that kind of racial commentary in the medium of television, it seems. And like, I think I read that Celeste Ng did envision Mia and Pearl as characters of color, but not necessarily black specifically. Like they could have also been Asian, you know? And so I think that's sort of the interesting thing that we, the sort of the larger meta conversation that we can have in terms of thinking about adaptation. You know, when you move to an explicitly visual medium like film, the things that could be left ambiguous in the book need to actually be made unambiguous. Celeste Ng's novel is definitely about race, but it's also about the ways in which race is hidden or how we like deliberately erase it or how we don't want to acknowledge it and we don't want to read it, but it's still there, right? So like Shaker Heights, Ohio, the way that it's described in the novel, race is just the entire foundation. It just reads as like, oh, this is, even with its historical significance as being one of the first like integrated communities in the US, right? And they're very they, proud to tell you that. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. So Celeste Ingo is, you know, makes a point to sort of bring up all the racial tensions that have existed and the specific ways of that the town dealt with white flight and blah blah blah. And so to sort of show how in spite of the sort of seemingly utopic or liberal veneer, right, that ultimately it's still this like hella white place that's also hella racist. Right. <laughs> right. So it's interesting to sort of how do you then kind of make that move in a visual medium where immediately you're then given the visuals. Right. Immediately, you have you have to sort of see like, okay, who are the bodies here? And we are, and as an audience, like you know, when we're reading a book, you're picking out the clues bit by bit, right? Mm -hmm. Like as I was rereading the book, I was like, all right, were there any signifiers, like racial signifiers, for both Mia or Pearl? And I think there's the only mention is like Pearl has dark curly hair. I mean, I don't even think Celeste Ng even really gives us that many physical descriptors, right? So just very very few, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So and she keeps it very ambiguous. You're then trying to look for the racial identity of the characters. You then become self-aware, or at least I do. I become self-aware of, well, what is my lens? What is the lens through which that I am looking for race, right? The Richardsons, it's a given that they're white. You don't have to say that they're white. You just know that they are. Right. right. Well, yeah. And I think that it's interesting, too, because I, you might know that the technical literary term for this, but there's like this concept, this idea that if you start reading a book that you naturally your default position if the character is the main character looks like you so if you're given no pronouns and you're a female reader you will assume that it's a female and if you're given no race and you're a white person you will assume well the default is white right and that that's like a thing that is a problem in literature. Yeah, I have heard that thesis. And I would say that that is also a thesis that's applicable to white readers specifically. Because for me, right, as a person of color who grew up, was born in the US, grew up US, and books that I that I read growing up and so forth, they're all primarily gonna be written by white authors and featuring <laughs> white characters, right? Right. And so, yeah, so, it's, so actually for me, my default actually isn't to assume that the characters are Asian, <laughs> because they are, you know, like, like right. generally like, you're right, because what we primarily read, especially I'm a white woman, and a lot of what I read and still read, unfortunately, nowadays is white people doing white people things. You know, in order to break out of that, I have to like make an effort, sadly, to do that. But I know for myself, and you know, here's my, my latent racism coming through, is that I saw this book by Celeste Ng. I started to read it. Obviously, Mrs. Richardson is white. 
I was like, oh, the name Mia, the name Pearl. She's got a long black braid and it's written by Celeste Ning. And there's this other BB character. So they're obviously Asian. Like I, that was my assumption, like most of the way through the book, which is awful. And I hate having to say that out loud, but that's definitely where, so I got the idea of othering, but I like, it wasn't enough for them just to be othered. I had to, for my own personal way to make the world make sense, put people in these little boxes. And I don't like that. And I think that's what's so brilliant about Celeste Ng's writing is that you, like, you kind of have to pause and think to yourself, oh, wait, how did I envision that character in that way, right? I mean, she does a, she makes a similar move in her first novel, Everything I Never Told You, right, which is about mm-hmm. a biracial family, but it's a Chinese man who marries a white woman, and, they're, and then it's about their three kids. And in that book as well, especially when it comes to the mixed race kids, and you don't really know, like, phenotypically exactly what they look like. Are they read as Asian in this town? You know, are they... Is their, does their race kind of play into their experience? And when you say like the sort of need to have to put people in the categories, I think we all we all suffer from that, right? This is why race is still a thing, right? Because mm-hmm. we still need to put people in these boxes, right? Right. It's um, it's comforting yeah. almost to be like, oh, okay, that's that, and this is this, all of that kind of stuff. And so I'm thinking maybe Celeste Ng is sort of deliberately making us aware of like how we're reading people, the kinds of boxes we're putting them in, and also our relationship to them, right? Right. Okay, I will tell you the moment where I realized how wrong I was, was when I looked at the casting and said, Carrie Washington, as Mia and I was like how dare they take this Asian woman and make her black like why would they do that why you know it's already a woman of color it was already like this this thing about race and it you know da 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 and I was like all up in arms and I went and looked up some interviews and then it was like everyone was like it's very ambiguous it's never clearly said and I was like oh well crap Kaylee you just like created this character in your head to fit the narrative that you somehow started with or whatever so that was embarrassing and then um, I read Celeste said that she actually wanted Mia to be more other, to be African-American, but didn't feel like she could speak to that experience in the same way. And so I was like, oh, okay, so I need to take a chill pill. And... fine but also like I thought that was interesting too like she was like I don't have the ability to write this character in the in this way so I'm going to leave it more ambiguous yeah I saw that same quote too where she sort of said that she definitely wanted this character to be racially othered but she didn't feel as an Asian American woman that she could sort of write a black protagonist right which i think makes sense and I, yeah and i could see how there could be an uneasiness because then does it, it's like does it assume that there's like some sort of universal experience of racial otherness right that this could be any sort of person of color um but i actually choose to sort of read it differently which is that it's more that the ambiguity then turns the table back to us mm-hmm. like it's, it's, it turns it back to us or of the reader and how then you're choosing to read these characters. So like, like you said, like you were sort of thinking like, yeah, Pearl and, you know, and, and yeah. the fact that the author's Asian, you know, and similarly then like, okay, then once you're told like, okay, then this person is actually not, is not this race, but this race, does that then change your understanding of that character too, right? Like do the same actions, the same descriptors, then all of a sudden signify as something else simply because now, ah, now I actually have a placeholder. Like I actually have body that I can imagine. Right. And so, you know, so for then Mia, 
to be outspoken, right? If she were an outspoken character, right? Does her then being black then make you read that outspokenness differently versus if she were Asian, right? Right, and the fact that she wasn't coded overly as African-American in the book. And they, they, there's a thing that I read an article and they were talking in the writer's room about choosing to make Mia more angry, partially because of her, her obvious racial experiences of being a black woman, a single mother black woman, was that they didn't want to go into the trope of the caretaker, the sweet, gentle black lady mothering figure who's there to care for these white children and stuff and they wanted to go away from that trope which is good please go away from that trope but i almost feel like they might have leaned a little too far into the angry black. her anger is totally justified do not get me wrong and the first thing that we see in the adaptation is her sleeping in her car and freaking elena richardson calling the cops on her because she's an african-american woman sleeping in her car and shaker oh my god cannot have that right so it sets that racial tone really easily and that scene of the cops coming up and Mia saying to Pearl get your hands out you know and she's scared and she's afraid and that anger comes from this this fear and obviously horrible things have happened to her and she lives in the society so it's it's totally justified I just I don't know like there was something about the way it was portrayed that made that made me a little uncomfortable and that's probably like you said you know going into my own racial history and my own you know issues with stuff but yeah, I just, it definitely affected me. And I, at this point now, I can't go back and reread this book without seeing Carrie Washington. And I do wonder how that would affect how yeah. I felt about Mia. So, yeah. Yeah. In fact, now imagining Mia as Black actually makes the version of her in the book more difficult. Because my reaction, of course, to those scenes is like, oh, thank God someone's actually saying these things out loud, right? Mm -hmm. Like when she confronts Elena, when she confronts Lexi, that like, those moments don't happen in the book. In the book, I'm like, why are you taking all this shit, right? <laughs> like, you know, you know, with, with Lexi, right, coming into her home and like after she used her own daughter's name at the abortion clinic, you know, and this is just this, you know, really sort of entitled, spoiled girl. And like Mia doesn't put her in her place at all, right, yeah. in the book. You know, she sort of says like, oh, you know, only you can know the answer to, the, to that question of whether or not you did the right thing, Lexi. And that's it. And then Lexi sort of walks away, basically saying, oh, your mom is super nice, right, to Pearl. She was really nice to me. To me, like, it wouldn't make sense. Like, like if I were to put Carrie Washington's version of this character in my head and then now reread the book, like, it doesn't make sense to me why she would be, like, such a doormat. I read this thinking of her as a mild, quiet, fearful Asian woman. I read so much fear in the book. They translated her fear into anger. And I just, there's part of me that wonders, like, obviously the racial component is important. And I think that it adds so many nuances. And obviously we've been talking for 20 minutes just about this. But like, I almost wonder if the idea that you were talking about before about the ambiguity of it and that we would have to sit with it in ourselves is kind of taken away from us as the viewers because it's almost spoon fed to us. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that happens with the visual medium where like the story has to sort of be rolled out in these like neat, you know, one hour increments. You know, you have to make it dramatic or it has to be a compelling, you know, there's gotta be cliffhangers, yeah. you know, things like that. And so, yeah. And that the message also has to be like super explicit, right. For the, you know, the audience sitting at home 
it's like, okay, so this is about this now, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the conversation between Lexi and her boyfriend, Brian, right, who's African American, and Mickey, because that conversation doesn't happen in the book either, right, when right. he says, when I get into Princeton, people think it's because I'm black, but when you get into Yale, like, people don't think that, you know, and, and, you know, so they have that conversation about race, and those are conversations that I think need to happen when the show wants to highlight that critique, but yeah, I think I, I think that the show kind of fails almost in that because you're right, that conversation needed to happen, but the racial component wasn't the end point of that conversation. The end point of that conversation was her choosing to not tell him that she'd had an abortion in this like right. act of kindness or whatever so that he'll never have to be burdened with it so like you almost leave that scene going oh good job lexi like you've matured because you're saving his feelings so suddenly that becomes the focus and and she doesn't really seem to learn that much about the racial issues it's more about her and this interpersonal relationship and like you could almost say like this idea of femininity and what women do or don't do and what they say and don't say and specifically white womanhood yes yeah, the conversation was important, and I'm glad it was there, but it, it was like nine-tenths of the way, and then we get distracted by the white woman's experience of, say, you know, sacrificing what would feel good for her right now to protect, I just, oh god, like it just, it left a weird taste in my mouth. There were definitely moments where I was like, huh, that was, that was a, that was a choice. Somebody made that choice. You know, and I think we have referred to Mia as a softer character, softer, more softly written in the book, which, you know, I, I think is still true, but she's not like a weak character either. She's also still helping Bibi when Izzy's upset about something, you know, Mia sort of, you know, responds, okay, so what are you going to do about it? That happens in the book as well. So it's not as if Mia is portrayed as like a fragile character in any way, True. you know, but to sort of put, make her sort of, sort of so forthright. And she's like, cause you know, Carrie Washington's character is sort of the way that she portrays it is like she's not about the bullshit and so like right away when elena offers her the, the job right she even says like oh you mean you want me to be your maid right away she's already putting that on the table i love that but, scene like, i just i i have yeah. to say in the book it was whatever in the show that they're like in the street and elena has come towards her and is you know in you know basically bothering her in the middle of the day and is falling over herself to show how progressive she is and how and I mean, that's why I said in, the, in my recap, it was like fueled by liberal guilt and like white savior complex. Like, that's, that's, that's Elena, right? You know, it's it's all about that. And the way Carrie Washington just stands there and like lets yeah. the silence stretch to that uncomfortable right. level and just lets Elena flounder. Right. I loved it so yeah. much. <laughs> I think the way, yeah, the way that the show draws the dynamic between those two characters is like it really is about revealing how much of Elena's kind of malevolence is rooted specifically in her being a rich white woman and not being able to own up to her privilege and also not own up to her own racism right so then what what then makes this interesting too is you know to to go back to what we're saying about like when you fill a character with a certain body right with a racial identity all of a sudden then you're reading all of the other actions associated with that character perhaps differently through a different lens. And so then now with Mia being a black woman helping this Asian woman through this trial, then we raise the question of, okay, so then what's the, what's her, what's her motive? And then what do we, what does that sort of represent to us as an audience? Right? So if she were Asian, then it would be very easy to sort of say like, Oh, of course, as say like, 
is, and if she was specifically Chinese, if she's a, a Chinese woman, Chinese American woman helping this Chinese immigrant woman trying to get her baby back, it becomes, you know, like, okay, so that so then is about this sort of like helping, you know, someone in your, you know, like a co-ethnic of yours, right? Like, you know, like someone in your own community. But when you have a black woman helping this Chinese woman out, then we have a different kind of dynamic. Mm-hmm. And, and specifically sort of, you know, against the kind of all the powerful white people, the Richardsons and the McCulloughs and all the money that they have, that it becomes about like, okay, this sort of like solidarity, this allyship between a black woman and an Asian woman. Right. right. And one of the things too that they changed, which I actually really appreciated, was that Mia, in order to help in the book, she says, you know, go to the press, use the press, the press is a weapon, you know, and she they, they get a lawyer that's pro bono and yada yada, who is Chinese. Then in the show, Mia sacrifices, she gives up this picture to make the money and have the money to pay the lawyer's fee. That adds a level to the betrayal, quote unquote betrayal to Pearl, because she had access to this money. She doesn't use it for her daughter. She uses it for this cause, which is a thing that Pearl gets very upset, understandably so, about later. But also, it's a sacrifice. It actually costs Mia something. It's emotionally difficult. It's a bigger give in the show than in the book. Well, and it also highlights, I think, maybe one thing that the book also, or the the show brings out, I think it's in the book, but kind of brings out even more explicitly, right, is the the extent to which put a price tag on things like basic human dignity. And so, you know, so when Elena convinces Linda McCulloch, right, to offer BB $10,000 to basically go away, right, to basically buy her child, right? right? No, but then, you know, we remember, though, that essentially Mia was put in a similar position, right? She was offered $10,000 by the Ryans, right, to be a surrogate. You know, so the this question of what is the dollar sign value to human life, I think that is something that the show, that's a question that the show pushes on a lot, because over and over again, Elena's response to everything is, oh, we'll, we'll pay you, of course, you know, like, I'll pay you for that, of course. Like, everything is always about, like, like so long as she can pay for it, then she can make things go her way. Right. Then well, she that, can have her way. That's one of her main source weapons. That's one of her main sources yeah. of power is, is yeah. the checkbook. Yeah. You know, get your husband's checkbook, which also, cool. Yeah. Well, okay, and then this is a good chance to segue a little bit because the, the selling of the babies and the price tag, and in the show we have this amazing <laughs> moment of Izzy selling right. the babies. <laughs> Right. So she has a table and she has the Cabbage Patch dolls and she has cut faces out of famous different ethnic people and put them on the cabbage and she's selling them. And the the white baby is very expensive. The Chinese baby is $10,000 and the black babies are free, which is obviously incredibly racist, which she says is the point. And this just speaks to the changes that happened for Izzy from, from book into show. And one of the changes that happens is that Izzy is is more competent in her rage, I guess I would say, because in the book, you know, she had like the heart of an activist, but she was trapped in this, you know, 15 year old's body. And, and her only experience was what the fishbowl that she lived in. So she can't even conceive of big moments and big actions because all she's known is this little bit of the world. So thankfully in the in the show, they were able to give Izzy a broader sense of her rebelling, you know, and I, I liked yeah, that. Like that. I liked that scene because it was also like, okay, this is her venturing into performance art, you know, you know, so she has, you know, she does her little like, you know, act of protest at school. But then afterwards, when she tells Mia about it, Mia also has her critique, right? Mm -hmm. Like, well, you know, it was kind of a 
effed up that you put the babies in blackface, right? Right. Like, you know, there's other like there's other ways of doing that form of protest, you know. And and so so is it, so I kind of like that moment. There was like it was very sort of fitting to sort of how like you know Izzy is definitely inspired by Mia and like wants to be an artist too, you know. And then you know make these statements through her art, but then she's also yeah she's also still a 15 year old white girl, right? right? And like so she's got to learn the impact of what she's doing. And yeah, she you know she has to sort of take critique also, you know. But it's interesting because in the book that scene doesn't happen but if you recall there early in the book i think it's sort of mentioned it's talked about why izzy got in trouble at school because there was was all around this racist orchestra teacher yes right who then kept picking on this one classmate by the name of Deja. So on page 76 in the book, oh, right? Um, when it talks about like, why Izzy hates Mrs. Peters, the orchestra teacher. Part of it is because she's also like this, apparently an alcoholic who's always showing up to school hungover and so forth, right? Um, this is right. moreover, she was often bitingly sarcastic, especially to the second violins, especially the ones who, as one of the cellos put it dryly, were pigmentally blessed. So that's how Celeste Ng indicates that Mrs. Peters is racist, right? That she pick on those who are pigmentally blessed, right? Right. Um, but it doesn't seem straight up like, okay, she's racist, right? But then later, well, what you know, she yells at her is yeah, super fucking. On the next racist. page, right, in regards to Deja, Deja Johnson, right? Mm -hmm. Again, it's not even said that Deja is black, but you know, maybe as a reader, you're trying to guess from the name, you know, and she's just this very sort of quiet, kind of mousy girl. And then Mrs. Peters says stand up Deja down up up down up did you not understand me you need me to speak in ebonics and so that is the moment where then we're like okay it is confirmed that Deja is black you know then now we see what's going on right and then so Izzy then and that's when then it says it was at this point that Izzy had jumped from her seat and grabbed Mrs. Peters's bow right and then I think breaks it and throws it at the teacher or something so here's a moment where like, you know, Izzy just sort of sees the injustice in the situation and then acts out. But even then, it's not like Celeste Ng then goes off and then starts saying like, you know, explain like, well, you know, Izzy's sort of indignation about this racist behavior, blah, blah, blah. I think what's important is that after that, when it's talking about why Izzy's trying to figure out, you know, what way she was so protective, it goes into this count of Deja not picking on her like the other kids did. Yeah. And then at one point, Deja gave her a tampon when she, or a yeah. pad, I guess, because they're yeah. high schoolers. And so it is like this, again, shared woman-ish, you know, thing where right. like she was an ally and then she was getting picked on. So there's obviously the racial things and then there's obviously like the underdog things. And then there's obviously like, she has supported me in the past. And, you know, so there's, mm -hmm. there's so many layers, which I love. I love that Celeste didn't just yeah. leave it as, Izzy is the champion of all black girls, right. you know, it's right, right. Yeah, right. Because then that would that would perpetuate the whole like white savior complex again, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not Yeah. And so that's what I kind of love, again, about Celestine's writing is like, you see these moments, and you're like, and the question is raised is, is it about race? You know, how do and how do we know? Mm -hmm. And I think that is so brilliant, because as a person of color, who's had to also navigate racism, but perhaps in a lot of ways, subtle, because I'm Asian and, and not black. And so the, my experiences with race are going to be you know different i've had many moments where it's like you know a, a certain way that someone like talks to me or whether i you know feel like i'm being seen or not whether it's work situations or social situations you know or while dating 
you know, oftentimes the question is, oh, wait a minute, did they say that just because I'm Asian? You know, did that have anything to do and now with, you know, in the midst of pandemic, right? <laughs> and with the anti-Asian sentiment that's, you know, being trumpeted to right now, that is going to be oftentimes a question. So, if, you know, when, you know, someone behaves a certain way, you know, oh, is it because I'm Asian or is it because I'm a woman? And sometimes we don't know. And that's the thing with, with racism is, especially when you're in a racialized body operating in, you know, America, is that oftentimes, like, Sometimes it's very obvious that you know that it's about race. And sometimes you kind of wonder like, wait, was it? And sometimes you feel in your bones that it was, even though you don't have like proof or evidence of it. Most of the time, racism is not going to be like so obvious, but it's just the little things, but you still know in your bones when it is, you know, mm -hmm. because of the body that you're, that you occupy. Right. And because so, you're living in this world where it's institutionalized right. and it's like the yeah. air that we breathe. So it's, yeah. It's there always. Yeah. yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah. yeah, for sure. The closest thing that I can experience in terms of that is uh, female, but then in being queer. And so if it's okay with you, can we transition yeah. into the queer aspects? Because, oh because boy. that's a big change from the book, right? <laughs> double the change, double the queer. Yeah. Like, okay. Right. First off, I just want to say, as a queer person, I love representation in media. Yay more lesbians, more non-binaries, more people who are questioning and refuse labels, all of that is a good thing. And gay men too, yes, yes, okay. But I feel like there's a difference between representation and, and having things shoehorned in, and I don't know exactly where I fall, because two characters have same-sex relationships, love affairs. Uh, Mia definitely is in love with a woman, and has a sexual encounter with her and Izzy is questioning and has a you know as a girlfriend she calls her you were my girlfriend for a year I actually really liked the change in one of them and found the other one problematic Izzy like I didn't feel like it was necessary for her to be queer and like to have that aspect be why she was getting picked on it definitely made it easier for us as the audience to be like oh that's why she's getting bullied that's why she's never fit in yeah. which again yeah. and that's why she loves Mia so much right because right. there's this sort of like immediate identification yeah, right and okay the goal of something yeah. Right. Exactly. We got, well, our gaydar is strong, you know, we did whatever. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. um, so, but, but kids can be bullied without that and kids can feel out of place in their families without that. And I don't think that we always need, and, and artists can be artists without mm -hmm. that. And to have both of our artistic people be queer. Mm -hmm. Okay. And okay. So, Izzy, and, but, but again, um, you know, and I know that death of the author is a very real thing. I read, a thing from Celeste saying that she wanted to make Izzy queer, but again, she didn't feel like there was enough like room in the novel to add that in. And I thought, it's your novel. You are very talented. You could have put that in if you wanted it. If that was an important thing, you could have done it. You didn't, that's fine. You made a choice. Like maybe she doesn't need to be, but okay. I, I okay. But what really bothers me is Mia. It bothers me so much. Like on the one hand, I love watching Carrie Washington be a queer black lady. That's awesome, right? On the other hand, first off, it's there's a weird power dynamic because she's in love with her professor. <sighs> okay, problematic. In the book, her professor was gay and was in a long-term relationship and was just a mentor. So now we've undermined the idea that a mentor. So 
your mentor gives you drugs and also like there's a sexual component in it and also is an artist. So again, all of our artists are queer and they all, you know, don't fit in and all of this stuff. And so I just, I found the whole power dynamic very unsettling. And then in the book, I really read Mia as asexual. She had never seen a naked man. She was a virgin pregnant woman. Like there was a turkey baster. And then later on, she talks about how she'd never felt that rush. She'd never felt that spark and that passion and that heat. She'd never seen a naked man is a line from the book. She was an asexual yeah, woman. Well, just adding to that, you know, to sort of mention her about her virginity, because in the book, the kids on a field trip, they see a Pauline Hawthorne photograph in the in the museum. And then and then they notice that it's that the, the model in it looks like Mia, right? Mm-hmm. It is Mia, you know, and and in that picture, it's, it's described as, you know, this woman with holding a baby. It's called Madonna and Child. Yeah, so then Mia sort of gets kind of referred to as this sort of like Virgin Mary sort of figure, right, in the book. Which, okay. And Pearl, yeah, and Pearl's name is a reference to the Scarlet Letter, right? Right, so, mm-hmm. right. Mia's entire identity was about being this mother figure to Pearl and her, her art. And like, those were her two balancing things. She worked the job so she could provide for Pearl and her art was her real work. Pearl had always known since she was a child that her mother's real work was art. So it's art and Pearl. And those are her things, these creations, these these parts of her that she is putting out in the world and molding and shaping and all that stuff. And in the show, we see Mia have casual sex. And on the one hand, hooray for sex positivity and empowerment with sex. And on the other hand, it was, it just, it, I didn't like it, Catherine. <laughs> just didn't like it. I thought that it undermined this this beautiful thing. I didn't I didn't like it. I think it might, might have had a different read on the character because I actually did read as Mia as potentially queer. And that the the relationship that she has with her mentor as again, it's all about implication, right? And like it doesn't say that they had any sort of like sexual relationship, but then like for a while Mia's like living in the house with this lesbian mentor and her partner and I don't know to what you know and I'm and as I'm reading it I'm trying to figure out like the extent to which like they've adopted her right and since this is also a narrative about adoption parental yes it wasn't sexual taking her on yeah taking her in as like a daughter or if there is actually a a sexual or romantic relationship between her and either one of these older women right I definitely Um, got the parental thing because her parents were so you know, different and against her and she didn't have that. And because this book is all about mothers and daughters and parents and and the family that you make versus the family that you share genetic material with, it was, and, and you know, there's a thing in queer, we call it fam, like that's family, you're family if you're queer and I'm queer and we support yeah. each other. So that was her queer family. That, that, yeah. that I did not read that at all as a sexual thing. And then to have it be sexual and I won't say it's predatory because it, what it, but it, 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 to me, it was very close to the line of being just very inappropriate and power dynamic of this, this teacher who gives her, you know, drugs and, and then is all about, you know, expressive and, you know, all this, uh, I just. Well, and also holds the key to her, like, staying in that school right and you right. know and gets her her yeah. first art show you know right. all of that stuff it's this benevolent patron type. i just it made me feel icky and i didn't like yeah. it i didn't like it <laughs> just... well sure because i mean if that if that professor character was a man an oh. older man we would immediately see this as a predatory relationship right mm-hmm. <laughs> yes yes anyways 
grumble. So I, Izzy being, being queer, I didn't think it was necessary, but I, fine. And it's shorthand. And again, in the show, everything's going to be amplified and more extreme. And okay, that's, that's fine. Sure. And then, then that adds a level to the runaway aspect, you know, and, and all this stuff and our, our LGBT youth running away from home and not being accepted is a very real problem. And so, okay. But me, that changed for Mia. I just, I hated it. I, I, I will say that. I just hated it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt the, the discomfort in that narrative. But I think it also offers something interesting and not necessarily for the better or for the worst. But then, because then on the flip side of that, we can then think about what then is the dynamic between Mia and Izzy. Because in some ways, you know, it's sort of this replication. Because Izzy is like basically being mentored by Mia, right? Because she's like... Right? So she's like, oh, look, your assistant, blah, blah, blah. But you also clearly get a sense that it's more like she just wishes Mia were her mother and not Elena. Right, exactly. Right? So that's um, that parental mother mentor person who yeah. gets me. And you can have that relationship with somebody. And even if, even if, see, okay, and here it would have worked just fine if, if with Izzy being queer and Mia not, because queer girls can totally have crushes on their mentors and their mother figures and have complicated feelings about feeling alienated from their own mother this the idea of femininity that's in their life and their model of what they're supposed to grow up to be and how they have complicated feelings about that and be closer to their dad and then have a mentor person and have a crush that is totally fine and that's worth exploring and that's that's good thing to talk about but then just to have also mia be queer it's just it takes that away and then it does it all it skates close to this history repeat because in, in novels things repeat right you have a theme and then it repeats and it repeats and and so we have pauline as the mentor to mia and we have mia as the mentor to izzy and obviously well mia would never do something with izzy that's gross and you know she's a child and all of these things but i feel like it's just i like it so much better as a mother thing and, and a mentor thing and not as a Blah. Anyways, no, uncomfy, don't like. Otherwise, I thought that the, that Izzy and the actress who played Izzy did a great job, and I loved I loved her stuff with the spray can. I loved her riding her not a puppet on her head. I love her burning her hair when her mother, you know, tries to get her to have a, a you know, get a, a fancy haircut to, to attract the boys. All of that stuff. I, I really liked Izzy. I just didn't like that change for Mia, so. We haven't really talked about Elena. Can we talk about Elena? Yeah. Okay, something that I noticed in the book the book calls her Mrs. Richardson over and over. Mrs. Richardson did this. Mrs. Richardson felt like this. Mrs. Richardson, Mrs. Richardson, which is a choice, an author choice. And I thought it was, it was very interesting. I thought her identity is not Elena. Her identity is Mrs. Richardson. She's this mother and she's this wife and she's this, she has this house and she, you know, she's an investigative reporter <laughs> wannabe and all of these things, but she's Mrs. Richardson, which is formal and keeps you distanced from her. And in the show, obviously everyone calls her Elena. Mia calls her Elena. Oh, the way Carrie Washington says Elena was just chill worthy, but like Elena, you know, they all call her Elena. And I thought that was just a subtle change that I think that the show was trying to, to humanize her in a different way. But then like we've already spoken a little bit, it, it makes her more villainous. But at the same time, the show decided to give us her backstory. So we have, sympathy a little bit more for her except that we don't because as mia perfectly puts it you didn't make better choices you had better yeah. choices yeah just such a good line but yeah i thought that the way that they adapted her character was was really interesting and that they went to the, the effort to give her a backstory and to give a sense of, of why she was making the choices she was 
Well, it's interesting then because like, yeah, they give her a backstory that I think a lot of women can identify with of having to like give up a life in order to live a life that fits people's expectations of you. And for Lena, it was like her mother's expectations, but also just, she just had this idea of like, well, yeah, after she graduates, she's gonna like, you know, move back home and then get a job and never leave Shaker, right? What's gonna look like. Well, first, first mm -hmm. after graduation, she's gonna go gallivant around Paris for a little bit, of course, of course, and then go home and start her real life. Yeah, right, right. Right, Because we all got to do that. Don't you remember, Catherine, when we went to Paris (laughs) for a year after high school? Yes. You know, so yeah, and then she's, you know, stressed out from motherhood and all of this stuff, you know, and so so there are a lot of things about that the show does to make her a relatable character, but then the way that she sort of lashes out because of the sort of anger, I guess, that she holds onto or the resentment about her own life, that, it seems like in the show, they make it so that, like, that is what's motivating her to act so crazy, right? She just sort of kind of gets worse and worse as a person as this, as with each episode of the series, right? Whereas I don't really feel that that is really the case in the book. I feel like Mrs. Richardson is just operating in the way that she's been allowed to in the world that she lives in as this upper middle class white woman. When she tries to like investigate things about folks, it's not necessarily with the explicit need to destroy them it's just her entitlement she just feels entitled to like that kind of information right because like she's a reporter whatever it's like the show tries to make her relatable and then yet makes her totally unrelatable at the same time just because of how how mean she is right and how angry she is and how bitter she is and so like you were saying you know at the top of this recording you know that as a white woman it's easy for you to be like well she's not like me right like you know (laughs) i'm not like you know that character and i think that is sort of to the detriment i think perhaps of the work that the book does because because i think it's more powerful if like you identify with the character and then you can see like oh shit that character is doing all sorts of things that are terrible for you to then be able to ask yourself oh wait a minute is that how i would also operate would i also do that and then and arguably in the book it's not as if the mccullochs and the richardsons do anything that anyone would necessarily condemn them for right they had access to lawyers they know how to work the legal system the system worked for them you know all of these things were like all the things that they are doing and wanting and and doing for their children are all very understandable and like arguably things that we admire right in people to do right when you have in the position to like use your privilege in that way why not right and also like so it's just a normal life yeah we operate with the information that we're given the mccullough's this is the information a two-month-old is found outside of a fire station in the winter time and you want to adopt a baby here's the baby okay so now they're working on adopting the baby it's not like they stole her from from BB. Do you know what I mean? Of course it gets more complicated when like the whole story and like the mother changes her mind. But I mean, they weren't they weren't evil people. They didn't set out to do evil. They set out to adopt a baby and then here's the baby that they were adopting. And had BB waited or you know not found out for another like I think they said two months, they were two months away from finishing right. the adoption. Like at that point, there there is no more legal rights. And yeah. I think even even eight months later, there might not be. I think that there's a waiting period, but it's only so long, you know? Um, I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's the point that both the book, like that the series is, is aligned with, with the book, which is that for people like the Richardsons and the McCulloughs, this system works for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Mr. Richardson even says as much in the series, right? Here, because when Elena was all worried, right, about the case, he was like, B.B. Chow's not going to win. 
mm-hmm. because people like her don't, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't say, what, do you, what does he mean by people like her? Right? <laughs> you can fill in the blank. Does he mean poor people, immigrants, you know, people of color, Asian people, right? Like you all know, of the above, whatever, <laughs> all of that, right? And, you know, but basically, you know, and then I think later, actually, when the kids are seeing the news, like the ver- when the verdict comes out, you know, the judge rules in favor of the McCulloughs, that I think even Moody actually articulates that, right? That like, well, they always win. You know, what do you mean by they? Is he asks, and he's like, you know, like the, the rich people, the beautiful people. Right. Like, yeah, I think mean, I mean, it's like the beautiful people or something. Like yeah. That. And then she then turns around and says, like, well, you're not really any better than them. You know, <laughs> like right. you're one of them, too. Oh, right? God. Moody. So, Moody in his own little Moody's in his own story. Um, it's a different book completely. And <laughs> oh, God. But yes. Yeah. But my point is, yeah so, so, you know, both of the both the book and the series does highlight sort of how, like, you know, the system does not treat us all as equal. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. The um, the system isn't fair. And it's it's almost a foregone conclusion. I think the book prompts readers, I think maybe, dare I say, even specifically white readers, to then sort of do a little bit more of that self-reflection of like, how, yeah, how am I judging, you know, this case and the actions of these characters? But then the series, I think, I don't think we're supposed to be rooting for Reese Witherspoon when she, you know, her her iteration of Elena, right? When she's, you know, acting the way that she does and being verbally abusive to her children and like, you know, and and basically almost cheats on her husband. Like all of the things that she does, we are able to judge right away, right? Right away. Oh, this bitch, right? Like what is wrong with her? And I think that's actually to the detriment of the book. Mm-hmm. Right. Because then it doesn't prompt the audience to have that moment of self-reflection of like, oh, wait a minute. But am I also Elena Richardson? So it's interesting because I also recall I'm recalling now in the series, you know, the scenes where Pauline is uh, lecturing you know, in art, art class. Right. And she's talking about the uncanny, the uncanny being that which is familiar, but that can also repulse you precisely because it's familiar to you that there's something in it that you don't want to see. And I think this the show kind of loses that a little bit because then in turning Elena into basically someone who is monstrous, she doesn't then ring as familiar to any of us, right? In the way that they make her so villainous. So for me, it would be a little, you know, I think the way that she's written in the book is a little bit more effective precisely because of its ambiguity. But, you know, but who's to say that every reader will necessarily reach that moment of self-reflection either? You know, I'd be curious to see if anybody reads Elena Richardson as like, at the end of the day, sort of a victim or a sympathetic character, you know? (laughs) So there's a quote from one of the reviews that I read, and I thought it it nailed it really good. It said, once again, nuance is cut out of the story in favor of melodrama. Ning's work thrives on subtlety, on what's understood but unsaid. There's nothing subtle about the series. (laughs) And I was like, yep, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, and for me, like, you know, is I don't even necessarily hate it. I think it's just, I, mean, I think a lot of it is just what happens when you go from book book to screen. And I think it just means that the series in the end sets out to do something different than the book did. And that can be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, even just, I mean, we can talk about the ending too, right? A very different ending, you know, from the book to have basically all four of the, the Richardson children, you know, want to burn their house down, you know, and then for Elena in the end to basically express like, like I set all this on fire. So, okay, the ending. In the book, Izzy is is upset and she has been trying to find a way to, to do this artistic expression and to make a splash and to do a thing and to rebel in a constructive slash destructive sort of way, right? Okay. And so in the book at the end, she lays awake all night and she makes a plan and 
Then she carries out her plan when nobody else is in the house, where she thinks nobody else is in the house, and she sets the fires in the bedrooms of her of her siblings. And it's methodical, and it's thought out, and okay. In the show, it's very impulsive. It's very, I'm a 15-year-old, and I have all these thoughts and feelings and emotions, and I'm just going to do something very extreme. And then... The, the, the siblings come in, they talk her out of it. You know, Elena comes in, she screams horrible things at her. Izzy runs away. Elena takes off for her bedroom and her bottle of wine. And then the children, the other three, suddenly, and for, I'm sorry, no discernible reason, come together as a unit for the first and only time in this entire anything. And now together, they're going to rebel against the, the house and what it symbolizes and, and all of that stuff. And I, I think the, and we talked about this before we started recording, but I think you had a good point that you could almost see Lexi going that way. You know, she's mm-hmm. she has had an arc. She has struggled and is upset with the perfection. And, you know, she screams at her mother, I'm not perfect. And Reese Witherspoon screams, yes, you are, which is, I mean, and then it's just, it, uh, oh, my gosh. And that she just screams it in this 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 volume that is painful. But it's it's that she's. Lexi's where all of her hopes and dreams like she's seeing herself she's building these children and they are perfect she's going to make them perfect come hell or high water and her identity is wrapped up in their identities and all of this stuff so this is like this huge breaking point for Elena you know yes you are and Lexi's like no I'm not and so she's she's rebelling against that I can almost see that but the boys these non-existent characters who've done nothing this entire time who've never really questioned anything and are just basically there to be boys interested in Pearl and I just I didn't quite get the point of either of these two boy characters very much to have them suddenly shift to into this yeah let's fight against mom and we're gonna we these entitled male boy guys are gonna burn down our 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 home and our safety and all of our trappings of privilege like this it just turned on a dime it was nope I say again nope (laughs) yeah it's a sudden turn I remember it feeling abrupt as well I guess for me, what I might like about it is that then it also offers something that the book doesn't so much, which is like, is there a possibility of a sort of like generational shift, right? To have all of the the Richardson children kind of realize all this, right? I mean, I think this becomes a sort of, yeah, it offers this sort of narrative that like, I don't know, you know, that maybe we want to believe, which is that like, that Elena Richardson is a thing of a bygone time that the world that she believes in, that the world that she wants to uphold is one that will inherit, inevitably burn down, even by her own progeny. And that is something, especially currently in, you know, Trump's America and everything, that we only want to hope, we want, we have, I want to hope that with each generation, you know, and, and I, re- I recall people, t- you know, I recall people saying a lot of that about Gen Z, mm-hmm. right? Generation Z, right? Like the current, the current youth, you know, and I'm a high school teacher, so, you know, I, know these are these are kids that I interact with and I I witness and and yeah it's true that there's so many ways that like this generation is so much more like socially conscious and critical of our world and the way that it works you know and you know I'm thinking of like the Parkland kids right you know and so I'm I'm wondering if the show is maybe infusing a little bit of that kind of message that there's going to be a generational shift that happens that this world that Shaker Heights Ohio represents is one that is has been decaying, right? It's not going to continue to stand. But we were seniors in 1998, and I know that obviously we were different seniors. Um, I'm a, I was a white senior. You were a, a senior of color. 
I, I and I was very comfortable in my upper middle class family. I certainly maybe that's why I was going to say I didn't feel like we were going to burn anything down until 10 years later when like I looked around and saw the world. But as I'm saying it out loud, I'm realizing that there's a reason why I didn't want to burn the world down when I was I mean, a senior. We, right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> wow. Watch Kalia wake up live on audio. <laughs> Yeah, but I, think, I mean that speaks to, that speaks to our point here, right? Which is like, because I agree. Like, I, you know, while I was watching the series, I had to remind myself that this takes place in the 1990s. You know, there's a lot more kind of signifiers of 1990s in the book. A lot more references, say, like to like the Clinton scandal, you know, sex scandal and stuff like that. But in a lot of ways, the the series actually read as very contemporary to me. You it, know, like it could have taken place today, here right. now, and actually, in some ways, is maybe even more fitting for the here and now, precisely because we, the show is coming out. And the book too, the book also, I mean, I don't know for how long it took for, for Aang to write this book. But yeah, um, it did come out in 2017. So it was, yeah. you know, already- so it like post-Trump. Yeah. You know, amidst like Black Lives Matter, you know, and all of that. So like, you know, you can see how the show definitely is informed by the, the discourses of today and not necessarily the discourses of the 1990s right because the 1990s was very much about like color blindedness yes right we didn't you know and, and the melting pot multiculturalism right those were the ways that we i recall us talking about we didn't even talk about race we tried to replace it with culture mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um in the 1990s and of course all of that was a veneer all of that was just hiding what you know never been resolved from the civil rights era right and i think in a lot of ways the book is also precisely about that right because all of like the dirty racial history celeste Ng kind of writes as a sort of like backdrop in explaining the history of shaker heights and all of that right in the series that racism is sort of made like right from the get-go like you said that opening scene with mia and pearl sleeping in their car right and then elena calls the police on them or the or even after you that's still on first episode that fear of sort of driving while black right when like the, the police is sort of following mia and not to say that these these conversations weren't happening in the 1990s also because you know hello rodney king incident and you know all of that you know police brutality all this stuff that stuff has been in realities but i think the way that we talk about it now is different from how we talked about it 20 30 years ago a lot of ways in a lot of ways the series actually comes from a perspective that's more marked by the here and now even as it represents you know a generation prior so like i see the richardson children in this in this show as gen z kids mm -hmm. not necessarily as us which is what they would have been right because i think right. in the book it says lexi was born in 1980 mm -hmm. right which is you know when you and i were born right and it was just it was interesting and then also there are definitely 90s affectations like there's like the car phone elena has a car phone you know um okay and you know to, to show her wealth and to show the time and all of that stuff but did you pick up on the music because it it took me a, a like a beat. I don't think I noticed it in the first episode. By the second episode, the music was so apparent to me. There was all these 90 staples, but they'd all been slowed down and put in the minor yes. key. And yeah, yeah. Oh my yeah, God. Elena Morissette. I think there were a couple of Elena, Elena Morissette covers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And on the one hand, I, on the, the first time when, it, when I first noticed it, I didn't like it because that's different. And I love my 90s music. That was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I, I started to think about, well, why did they make this choice? And I think it was to take these pop things and like kind of show the darker undercurrent of them. And that, you know, sometimes we were just like, la la la, singing along with the song yeah. and not really thinking about the lyrics. But when you slow them down, then you, you can't miss the lyrics, you know? So I thought that was really, really well done, but it definitely yeah. put us in those nineties because that 
that was the music that yeah, yeah start rewriting the 90s too you know yes yes it's mm-hmm. definitely yeah, well, like not rose tinted glasses but like our nostalgia goggles almost but maybe not that i don't know it's it it's definitely the the veneer of now on the past i, I don't know how else to put it yeah the show doesn't the show neither the show nor the book allow us to be nostalgic for that time mm-hmm. um they're both definitely prompting us to be critical right but I want to talk about motherhood. <laughs> no. mm-hmm. Okay. So we have three mothers, main mothers. I mean, there's other mothers, but three main mothers. And they all make different mother choices. And they all have different mother choices. And I thought that there was a couple points being made about the universality of, of motherhood. And there was a scene in the book that they took out of the show. And I really wish they'd put it in because I think it... Maybe, maybe, maybe for once they were like, no, that would be too on the nose. Let's not do it. <laughs> but maybe not. I'm not sure why they chose to leave it out. But in the, in the book, we, we don't really see BB's backstory as much as she tells us about it, but we don't see it as much. We don't see Elena's struggle with her fourth child um, near, you know, at all, really. It, well, we do, but it's a different way, reason, a different way, which I'll talk about in a second. But we don't see like the struggle of getting the child to feed, eat and stop crying and all of that stuff. But we do see Mia have that issue with Pearl when she first has Pearl. And Pearl won't stop crying and Pearl won't latch. And Pearl's, you know, that kind of a child, baby at first. And she has a neighbor who helps her. And then she gets through it. Okay. And I thought that was really interesting because in the show we definitely see both Bibi and Elena unable to feed their child. And Bibi goes to buy formula and is short 70 cents. And... Elena has the money to buy the formula, but then the water's been turned off at her house because of her husband is, is fixing up the house and hasn't gotten to it yet, which to me really speaks about like this push and pull between the feminine and the masculine. And you have like the, the father figure being like, what's one more kid? Four is the same as three, blah, blah, blah. It's not his body. He's not the one taking off time from work to care for them. So um, fuck you. But also like, so it was just interesting. They both had these very similar struggles um, and then Mia had had the same struggle in the book, but we don't actually see it. We have different struggles with Mia when she, when Pearl is little, but watered down. It, you know what I mean? Like there was, it was a different kind of struggle. Does that make sense? Like Mia seemed more competent as a mother. Did you get that sense at all? Because I, I didn't feel like Mia struggled as a mother the same way that the other two struggled with babies. Baby motherhood, different than teenage motherhood. Mia's motherhood it passes by us in a montage of like in the car with the child. Right. And so, yeah, I'm not sure if there, why that choice was made. So anyways, but the universal aspect of, of women struggling with their children, and even if you've had three kids, the fourth one can be the one that is vastly different and is, is you know, more difficult and that, that can fraught that relationship. And in the show, that's the, the impetus. That's the reason why Izzy and Elena have issues. Isabel wasn't wanted. She was a child who wasn't wanted. And Elena decided not to get an abortion because, as her mother said, abortions are legal and we'll fight for their rights and yada yada, but they're not for people like us. You know, people with money, people who are white, people blah blah blah. Okay. Which, of course, doesn't make sense either because we know for a fact that is precisely rich white women who are having abortions, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that any attempt to say, like, defund Planned Parenthood and all those kinds of things are actually hurting poor women and women of color more, right? Right. But, but right. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. It seems like a weird... It's more about sort of the, cl- 
us propriety, right? Not us, not us, but them, those people. Okay, so Isabel's an unwanted child, and then there's a struggle, and then, you know, she she's the one who's derailed Elena's, you know, career, and, like, all of this stuff, and then she's queer, and she's the artist, and da-da-da-da-da, like, all of these reasons why. Where in the book, it's it's more subtle, and just, it's so much sadder that Isabel almost died when she was a baby, and so... Elena's fear for Isabel has always been that Isabel will be taken away from her, that she will lose her, which is why she's like micromanages her and is overprotective and is like in her face all the time, like watching and looking and da 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 da. And that overzealous helicoptering. And that is why Isabel has pulled away and rebelled against that. And then literally, Elena. Yeah, in the book, we don't get the sense that. Elena doesn't love her youngest daughter, even though she calls this daughter her difficult child, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, we don't necessarily get the sense that she doesn't love her. She just doesn't know how to give that child the love that she needs, right? right? Whereas in the series, she actually says, I wish I never had you at all, yeah. right? Ugh. So she actually explicitly disowns this child. Yeah, right? she cuts um, her so, yeah, out so of very, Well, and that's an interesting difference to sort of highlight because then it does sort of, I don't know, maybe magnifies that whole question of like, what does it mean to be a good mother, right? To go back to your question about motherhood, you know, because the, the, you know, because the debate around baby chow is that like, okay, so in giving up your baby, right, leaving your baby at a fire station, you know, in a moment of extreme desperation, and in the book, I think it gets talked about as one mistake, right? Does that one mistake then make you lose your right as a mother altogether, right? Have you then completely given up, right, your right to be um, a mother altogether. Um, and does that forever give you the scarlet A? Does that forever cast you as a bad woman and as, as a bad, bad mother, right? So that's sort of the main question. I think neither the book nor the series actually answers that question for us. I think that's still, I, I would imagine that audiences and readers are going to still have their own kind of answers to that question, right? Of like, whose side were you on? Right, mm-hmm. the McCulloughs or or BB Chow. I will um, say that I take exception with something that Mia said in the series. She doesn't say it in the book. She says it in the series, and I found it horrible. At one point, when she's talking to BB about fighting the McCulloughs for custody, and she says, like, you know, these people who pretend to love her, talking about the baby, and I was like excuse me, they're not pretending to love her. Like, they might not be her biological parents, but they were working to become her legal parents. And adoption is a thing, lady. Like, when people choose to adopt children, they're not, I mean, I can't speak for everybody who's ever adopted a child, but most people who adopt a child, like, they want the child, they love the child, that that there's a reason for that. And to tell a parent or to say about adopted parents that they're just pretending is just hurtful and wrong and that it's one of our our heroines um, and we're supposed to be sympathetic to Mia. She's the one who's, you know, we're, we're rooting for her. And to have her say that and to have it go completely unchallenged was, I hated that. I, mm not okay to say something like that in my opinion mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with anything like they love the child bb loves the child that's not the question and like you said everyone's going to come down on where you know who they think should or shouldn't have you know the answer to this but that really bothered me especially considering that mia was you know had basically <laughs> stolen i don't know um <laughs> lied about miscarrying Pearl and then was keeping Pearl away from her father who wanted a child like again like you know and yeah I yeah 
very complicated feelings about. Because women's autonomy is a complicated, continues to be a complicated conversation, mm-hmm. right? You know, and, and, and the fact that both the series and the book is engaging with this question of whether or not these children were stolen, right? Yeah. Did Mia steal her own child from the Ryans, right? Did the McCulloch steal Mei Ling, right, from BB, mm-hmm. right? That the fact that we even talk about children as property to be stolen and possessed speaks to how then we think about women as reproductive bodies of those babies too, right? Because if the children are in fact property that can be bought for $10,000, that can be stolen, right? Right. Then what does that also say about the women who carried them? Okay, so my mother actually works in fertility. I was talking to her about surrogacy and she told me that there is a new term, might not be new, but it was new to me. You don't call them surrogates anymore. They're called gestational carriers, which I thought, whoa. Okay, and and I guess the reason is um, a surrogate seems like, it it sounds like fake. Gestational carrier sounds very detached because you're carrying somebody else's child, right? Like that's, it it makes that level of of separation, you know, very clear. It's things like this that happen in the story that have led to now there's, there's like lots of contracts and there's this and the that's and there's rules and there's regulations and it's like a major thing. So I just thought that was interesting. The gestational carriers instead of surrogates and speaking to your idea of like, who are these women and how we the yeah. terms of this, the object, the thing that could, the thing yeah. of value. Yeah, because I don't know how I feel about that term either, because it feels so inhuman to me. Mm-hmm. Just a full character. I'm just thinking of, like, this incubator. You know? Right? I so, think that's the uh, idea, so which is yeah, disquieting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I felt, I felt bad for the Ryans, of course, but at the same time, kind of like, it's such a weird way to do it. You look like my wife, woman on the subway, that I'm going to follow awkwardly and weirdly. Like, I don't know. It was hard to... Maybe that happens. I don't know. It was hard to believe. But also that, you know, there's, an, again, the power dynamic of, you know, what purchasing the use of somebody's body and the who's doing the purchasing, the rich white people in New York, and who's being purchased. Mia. Yeah, there's, there's the, the racial undertones are there all over the place. Racism, racism everywhere. Right. Okay. We talked about motherhood. We talked about race. We talked about queer. We talked about the ending. I said how much I disliked both of the boys. Stinking moody. Is there anything else that we haven't said that you wanted to make sure that we said or talked or hit on? Mm, I thought we covered a lot. I did want to point out that in the show, we had this moment of Elena and Mia bonding. There's a, Mia basically saves Elena at book club. They're talking about the vagina monologues. So very timely. <laughs> okay. And um, Elena, of course, is horrified, doesn't even want to say the word, all of this stuff, right? Okay. And then Mia comes in and she's got like this answer that sounds like she's supporting uh, Elena. Nothing with what Elena was saying. Actually. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So many levels to this conversation. And then afterwards, like, they have a glass of wine together and they're kind of bonding a little bit. And, and it's like the beginning of this could be friendship, maybe. And then, of course, you know, it, it fizzles out because Elena has done something to help Pearl because Pearl asked her for help because Mia wouldn't help her and, you know, becomes like this whole thing. Okay. But I thought that was interesting that they, they went ahead and showed us the beginnings of a friendship in order, I think, 
to make it more powerful when they go apart, but also so that when Elena says, I thought we were friends, like it's not just out of the blue. Like in her view, we talked, we had a glass of wine. Doesn't that make us friends? Isn't that? Right. Which lends it to, again, to that idea about, is it racist? Is it not? You know, is it manipulative? Is it not? All of those those questions. And according to Elena, she would, you know, she's like, I would never have made it about race. And, you know, Mia's like, right. it's always been about race. So. Right. From the, from the day one, it's been about race. Yeah. Because she, she says, like, you made it about race when you begged me to be your maid. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Right. And then I think that's when Elena's like, I thought we were friends. Right. And she's like, white women always want to be friends with their maid. And I was never your maid. And I was never your friend. Right. Is what she tells Elena. And so, yeah, I actually, I mean, I, and I think, I think maybe that scene is useful because it kind of manipulates the audience's expectation that like, Oh, okay. Like, could these two women be friends? Right. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like, no, they couldn't have because precisely because of the conditions of that friendship that Elena has set. Mm-hmm. Right. So. And it's not equal. It's not a, like even from, you know, whatever else, she is her landlord. Right. There's always yeah. going to be landlord, this power lawyer. dynamic. And also Elena and Elena's relationships are always transactional. Mm-hmm. Right. It's always about, oh, you know, let me pay you to clean our house. And she, when she's, you know, she goes, oh, can I buy that painting that's over your mantelpiece? right? I would pay you, of course, to take the pictures at Mirabelle's party. Everything is always transactional with Elena. So, like, that's not your friend, right? right. <laughs> you don't do that with friends. You right. do that with employees. And then yeah. even at the beginning, like, when, you know, uh, they're looking at the place and Mia's like, I don't know, you know, can we afford it? Can we not? And Elena, you know, is like, oh, we you know, I'll waive this and I won't even check your references. And she's not thinking of it as I'm doing this she's she's thinking i'm such a nice person look at me not even caring about your history and wanting to help this poor woman where that's so condescending and awful but if you said that to her she'd be like well what was i supposed to do if i would you know to be mean to like treat her like any other person wouldn't that be brown missing and that is and that is true to elena in the book too Mm -hmm. like because i think she's also described as like someone who just like is very self-congratulatory in her generosity and she is always a little miffed because she's also miffed at Mia early on that Mia is not more doesn't seem more grateful or enthusiastically grateful mm-hmm. you know for her generosity right because Mia just like okay sure like I'll, I'll do that job you know and not like oh thank you mm-hmm. you know generous white lady yes uh, but there's actually a you know the the scene where Elena goes to the abortion clinic and it's like an old friend right who's like the director Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's been attempting to access confidential records to see if B.B. Chow ever went to have an abortion, right, as, like, potential ammunition to use against her, right, with the idea being that, well, if she consulted for abortion, maybe she didn't want to have a kid anyway, and, like, that would make her even more irresponsible as a woman. Right, right. well, and, and um, it's it's that she gained, she looked like she gained weight and then lost weight during the trial, so she's like, yeah. oh my god, if she had an abortion, women who have abortions can't want other children, that yeah, she doesn't already compute. Gave up this one kid, and now she's got, you know, she's getting pregnant again. Yeah, you know? obviously she's a yeah. slut and not yeah. a good person if she, yes, yeah. yeah. And of course, feeding into the oft-quoted argument that, like, well, if you didn't want to have a kid, then don't get pregnant, mm-hmm. right? Like, we still hear people, you know, arguing as a way to condemn women and as a, as a justification, right, to, you know, to limit abortion rights and things. But anyway, my point is, in that scene where she's trying to get this information on Bibi, the doctor, because they, you know, they 
because Elena does sort of remind her that like, oh, you know, like I had put in a good word for you, you know, because my, oh, like my mother served on the board of this organization right. or something. I put in a good word for you because, which is how you basically got the job. And so I think even in the book, it sort of acknowledges that like, oh, okay. So Elena basically keeping a running tab. Yep. 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 And, you know, I, I like the fact that her friend, quote unquote friend, sees through it and is kind of like, oh shit, man, like we're not friends. This is, she's calling in this quote unquote favor by asking me to do something illegal. And then the book yeah. even says that was the last time they had lunch because. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. So um, final thought, Catherine, was the book and then was the series worth your time? Oh, totally worth my time. Both the book and the series, I think, are definitely worth my time. I think, you know, I, and I think, I do think the, the series is in generally sort of aligned with the book, you know, and it's certainly a compelling watch, you know, but it's definitely doing some, it's making some moves that are very different from the book and, and doing, therefore, a different kind of work. But that makes it productive and interesting. For sure. I think, obviously, they were both worth my time. I'm glad I watched the show. I think I actually enjoyed the book more than the show, um, which is not where I expected to land on this, but I felt like the book asked more of me. And mm -hmm. I feel like the if, if I hadn't read the book and was watching the show because of this podcast, if I just sat down to watch the show, I think I'd be like, oh, that was interesting. And Reese Witherspoon is a good actress and Carrie Washington is a good actress and da 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 da, da. And I would have just moved on with my life. But the book personally, after reading it, it stayed with me. It, it stayed with me and I wanted to read it again later at some point and parts of it kind of would resurface in my mind. And so to me, I would have to say, I think I got more out of the book, but the show was definitely compelling. It was wonderfully acted. It's a slow and steady burn <laughs> and um, very well crafted, very well put together. They made some choices I did not like and and again though maybe that's maybe that's me maybe I am more comfortable with the Mia in the book who wasn't as angry and challenging because that's easier for me to 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 deal with than um, you know an angry challenging person who pushes buttons and pushes back against things so that probably says more about me than either one of these things but yeah I would say I'm glad that I read them I'm glad I read it I'm glad I watched it and uh, I highly recommend both but like you said they're very different things they're doing different things and so if you're not looking at them to be the same thing I think that your enjoyment will be profound in both cases well and I, I think the specific changes for me don't detract from the book but they just kind of um, in some ways magnify some of the things that the book is doing and also kind of just add sort of other elements to the conversation, particularly in regards to how we read race and how we think about race and how we understand it, how we talk about it, um, precisely because the book does it or the, the series does it um, in kind of a different mode, right, than the book does. I think, in, I think there's much to be gained from actually specifically looking at those adaptive moves, right, that, like, that you're not going to get from just having read the book and only having watched the series. That really, it's really productive, actually, to, to, to look at both of them. Yes. Agreed. Which is why it's so awesome that somebody came along and made a podcast that did just that. <laughs> <laughs> More expansive than the, one of those BuzzFeed lists with the top 10 differences, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, Catherine, uh, would you like to share with the listening public how people could 
connect with you on socials? My name is Catherine Fung, and my day job for my day job, I work as a high school English teacher. I used to be an English professor, and I write things, you know, in diff- different forms. <laughs> you know, so yeah, you might be able to find my stuff out there, but I don't feel the need to like promote it. Great, thank you so much. That's the end of the episode. Today's episode was brought to you by White Fragility, mothers everywhere, and those that support the arts. Whether it is buying photographs or supporting the podcasters that you love via Patreon, we want to thank everyone who supports artists and the art that they create. Right now, in case you don't know, for a one-time donation of $25, you can pick the book and movie combo that we will be featuring, and we will even feature you in your three-minute rant if you are so inclined. So, we've already curated a list of ones that we really, really hope that nobody picks, <clears throat> Twilight, but we will do it because we need the money to keep this going. Oh, wait. If you have no money, that's no problem. All of our episodes are, of course, free, and we would invite you to rate and review us on iTunes and other places. Please find us on social medias and like us and share us and follow us because those clicks will get other clicks, and then those people might be able to spare the one or five dollars or one dollar or just the one dollar, just one dollar a month on Patreon so that we can keep doing this wonderful, exciting, and I think very important work. Thank you so much.